What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we take a look at some of the final thoughts on the Department of Justice's 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. We take a look at two examples of ham-fisted leadership, courtesy Matt Kelly. We ask, why does working from home raise compliance risks? We look at Kuwait's role in facilitating the 1MDB scandal. We consider common features of corruption and police brutality. We ask how you can sharpen your cybersecurity. We look at how you can build a listen-up culture for your organization. We consider managing risks in compliance staffing. And we look at a key departure from the Department of Justice. We have two upcoming webinars we want to uh, share with you, one that Tom Fox and Jonathan Marks are going to put on, a second one by Jay's colleagues and affiliated monitors, so check out the show notes for that. Also, we review this week's entry on the Compliance Life, Compliance and Coronavirus podcast, and on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, all on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 209 for the week ending June 20, excuse me, June 12, 2020, the George Floyd is Buried edition. Jay, as President Trump goes back into the bunker, the rest of the country continues to reopen. Uh, We are still self-distancing here in prestigious Cypress, Texas, as I believe you are in uh, still under wraps, Southern California. But I wanted to talk about some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. What say you? I say we've got a busy week as always. Let's dive right in. And uh, first off, what are your thoughts on last week's Department of Justice 2020 update on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. So, yeah, we took a look at uh, take a look. We took a look at that last week in uh, pretty much detail, but there were some great sort of wrap ups and summaries. Um, and I wanted to uh, give sort of my highlights and then take a look at Mike Volkoff's. I thought the highlights were uh, risk assessments, continuous monitoring, and continuous updating, mergers and acquisitions, data, data, data third parties, qualities of CEO and compliance function and institutional justice and fairness. Uh, Mike looked at it from the following angles, resource and empowerment for the CCO and compliance, consistent discipline uh, as uh, led by the CCO, access and use of data, real-time monitoring and updating of compliance. And I really like his phrase, real-time monitoring, because I think that's where we're going. And post-acquisition integration and audits, that's the uh, M&A 
um, that I focused on, but I focused on the pre-acquisition. I would note that we'll talk about this at the end, but Jonathan Marks and I are going to do a webinar next Thursday on the update, and we'll have a link to uh, registration and information on it in the show notes. And of course, I'll talk about it again. But uh, this uh, this document is incredibly important for the compliance professional. We we really took a deep dive last week, and I really appreciated that we spent last week sort of going through it in some detail. So I want to relitigate that. But every compliance practitioner needs to read this. There's lots of commentary that can give you a sense of what it's about, uh, the highlights, and then take a deep dive because everybody links to it. Of course, it's available on the DOJ website um, under the fraud section or uh, criminal vision, I should say in the fraud section. So take a look at it. Lots of great stuff for the compliance practitioner. It's going to lead the compliance effort into 2020 and beyond uh, 2021 going out. So uh, check it out. And uh, any final thoughts from your end, Jay? No, I I think uh, we've all said what needs to be said. Now it's time for corporations' actions to show that they're actually taking the nudge from the DOJ and being proactive with it. Uh, Next up, we've got something from the coolest guy in compliance, uh, Matt Kelly. Uh, This appeared on his Radical Compliance uh, blog. And then uh, Tom Ewan, he also took a deep dive on this subject in compliance into the weeds. And we've got two tales of ham-fisted leadership. One might assume that the leadership challenges facing Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and Roger Goodell at the NFL don't have much in common. But when talking about inept leadership in modern times, Some universal truths do indeed emerge. First of all, let's recap each man's gaffe. Um, The spark that ignited the latest corporate ethics conflagration happened on May 28th when Zuckerberg appeared on Fox News. That was probably his first mistake to talk about social media. The entire interview was 20 minutes long, but the money quote is, I just believe strongly that Facebook should be the arbiter of truth of everything that people say online. Private companies probably shouldn't be especially these platform companies, should be in the position to do that. Next, Facebook was struck by a virtual walkout three days later. On the NFL side, uh, what happened was Goodell faced down his own crisis when players began speaking up about radical justice protests happening across the U.S. By the middle of last week, NFL receiver Michael Thomas and other players had begun working clandestinely with an NFL social media employee to post a video statement. Thomas's video dropped on Twitter on the evening of Thursday, June 4th. Within 24 hours, Goodell re- released his own statement. Goodell said, after years of frowning on player protests during the national anthem, he finally ran in the opposite direction and said players should protest social injustice. We, the National Football League, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peaceably protest. I personally protest with you and want to be part of the much-needed change. So it's, a, it's not a, only a 180, it's a 360, and both these guys are spinning around. Matt sees that this event is likely to happen more often in years to come. Why? First of all, thanks social media. It allows us to document, conduct both good and bad, and then disseminate our views about conduct. Second, organizations that depend on skilled labor, such as a technology company or professional sports league, are especially vulnerable to these new ethical battles. 
Similar eruptions have happened before, usually over companies' association with the Trump administration. Lately, it's been Black Lives Matter's movement and social justice. Companies have stampeded to publish statements that they're on the right side of racial equity and for good reason. But the black eyes suffered by Facebook and the NFL show just how powerfully employees can punch back at those who don't. So, Jay, next up, we have an article from Vera Sharapanova. She is a regular contributor, I would say, at least once, but perhaps twice a month to the FCPA blog. She is a Russian national living in Italy, and she takes a look at uh, compliance largely from behavioral aspect, excuse me, behavioral science aspects. And she did so in this blog post where she talks about the behavioral risks skyrocket when employees work from home. And uh, she really looked at it, as I said, from the behavioral uh, perspective. And this is something that I think is going to be needed by compliance practitioners to think about more. So I really applaud her putting this out there. And she summarized the four main behavioral risks related to working from home. And uh, their underlying drivers is number one, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, She believes, she wholeheartedly believes in the Aristotle quote that man is by nature a social animal and the psychological distance um, really leads to, uh, uh, or at least can drive unethical conduct. To the value of social influence, uh, that when we are together, the society you work in helps shape your decisions, choices, ethical and otherwise. And employees look for social cues in their environment. Obviously, if you're working from home, you won't find those. Um, Three, a shift of social identities. And according to social identity theory, uh, social group membership has a strong impact on people's behavior. I don't think that's too controversial a statement, Jay. And certainly social identity in a company when you uh, are uh, talking about thinking about uh, being communicated with to do business ethically, to do the right thing, is going to uh, keep you uh, along that path. And then she fourth, uh, this next point is not really a behavioral aspect, but it's perhaps even more of a practical one. And that's uh, when you're working from home or now, uh, many people are, are either considering or developing a side hustle. They may do that because they fear uh, economic dislocation may cause them to be laid off. Uh, they may have had a spouse laid off. They may have extra time on their hands. They may be looking and seeing business opportunities that they didn't see before uh, because of the changing consumer landscape, both in terms of what we need and what we want, and that this could um, put their personal interests first. They might make riskier decisions, and it certainly could be a conflict of interest. So really interesting piece by Vera. Uh, We, of course, are linked to it in the show notes, so check it out. So next up, we have one of Tom's favorite corrupted money managers moving money across the globe. We're going to be talking about 1MDB's suspected suspected mastermind, J-Lo, and how he found new ways to move money in Kuwait. This comes to us from group coverage from the Wall Street Journal from, hope I don't butcher this too badly, Naomi Visserby, our good friend Aruna Vizwanatha, and Bradley Hope. Last September, fugitive Malaysian financier Jay Lowe traveled to Kuwait, slipping free of international arrest notices and authorities in the U.S. and Malaysia who are seeking him for his alleged role in a multi-billion dollar fraud. Mr. Lowe entered Kuwait despite red notices from International Police Agency Interpol, according to documents obtained by the journal. 
The Kuwait connection has provided Mr. Lowe means to fend off U.S. and Malaysian investigators who accuse him of masterminding the plundering of the Malayan state, Malaysian state investment fund, One Malaysia Development BHD or 1MDB. On visits to Kuwait in early 2016, he sought out the son of the prime minister, whom he had met earlier in the year, and offered to use his contacts in China to steer investments to Kuwait. They used a French businessman named Baha Kiwan, and he helped facilitate matters. The Kuwaiti ties brought Mr. Lowe new protectors, new business deals, and new channels for moving money. Banks there handled hundreds of, mil- hundreds of millions of dollars tied to Mr. Lowe's activities, including millions in payments to companies in the U.S. and the U.K. to cover his mounting legal bills. Uh, the article is fascinating, and they trace this really down into the nitty-gritty. What was of interest to me is uh, one thing was Mr. Lowe began courting Kuwait in early 2016, and they needed to come up with money for one MDB, the money the fund had borrowed but couldn't repay. He and Mr. Lowe turned to Beijing, appealing to a high-priority Chinese government program, the Belt and Road Initiative, aimed at building infrastructure across Asia, Africa, and other parts of the world. Another interesting part of the article is that in September of 2016, documents show that some U.S. AMLAW 200 law firms had money flowing to them from the fund, as well as money going to an entity called Wright Maritime Group of Florida to pay for his yacht. So uh, the uh, the story keeps going on and on. Uh, any other news that we would like to talk about Goldman Sachs and J-Lo? So we uh, actually, there's a report in the New York Times today, Jay, that came out after uh, we got the show notes together that Goldman is lobbying the Department of Justice to uh, do away with or take away the requirement that Goldman Sachs plead guilty to its role in the 1MDB scandal. It's suggesting a deferred prosecution agreement or some other uh, type of agreement um, or type of charge would be appropriate, but Goldman desperately does not want a guilty plea in this case. Of course, Bill Barr's clearly conflicted in this, uh, having worked at the law firm that represented Goldman previously, um, and I'm sure Bill Barr will uh, be lobbied on this. And uh, whether a campaign contribution is made or something else is done, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. So, Tom, next up, we've got a real fascinating article from Matthew Stevenson. I was just really blown away by it. Do you want to share the common features of corruption and police brutality? Sure. If you don't read Matthew Stevens, the global anti-corruption blog, uh, you don't subscribe to it, you should. It is a fabulous blog, uh, focus and different than really any other blog out there, because he looks at global anti-corruption from a policy perspective. He's a law professor at Harvard, so occasionally he'll take a deep dive into the law. And that, of course, is fascinating for people like me who like to geek out on the law. But I would say the larger... Uh, discussions are around policy, Jay, and this one really is. It's entitled The Three Common Features of Dysfunctional Organization Cultures and then uh, Corruption and Police Brutality. And he takes a look at three, took a look at three, um, what he believed were common characteristics. The first one is excessive in-group identification and loyalty. Uh, this, you know, loyalty is clearly uh, something that uh, both groups have. 
and uh, the in-group loyalty can become the end in and of itself rather than a means to attaching the organization's legitimate mean, means. And sometimes the in-group defines its identity simply uh, as opposed to other groups or out-groups. So uh, that can be one. <clears throat> Second, realism as rationalization. And one of the, one of the psycholog- psychological techniques that members of corrupt organizations use is to resolve the cognitive dip- dissonance they may uh, be experiencing as something very different um, uh, in, in where an unethical behavior uh, can get the job done. And should you think that this is limited to these two organizations, well, here you just uh, need to simply uh, consider other organizations where getting the job done in the trenches is really a mandatory requirement for belonging. Next up, Failure to fully integrate ethics as an organizational priority. An interesting feature of corrupt organizations is that corruption really is a part of the business strategy, even if there's an ethics code on paper. Uh, And here I would even point to uh, Enron, which, of course, had the the fabulous code of conduct, but a a crooked E for a very crooked reason, that they were – it was just a corrupt organization literally from the top on down. And then uh, recruitment, selection, and promotion. Jay, we often talk about incentives and compliance, and we usually talk about those in terms of financial incentives. But never forget the incentives around promotion, selection, and recruitment. The people that get hired and then the people that get promoted within an organization, if they see corrupt acts leading to uh, people getting promoted. And by corrupt acts, I mean doing anything necessary to uh, make your numbers. Uh, by making your numbers by fuzzy accounting, making your numbers by paying bribes, uh, making your numbers any way, shape, or form, then um, this can um, obviously is a clear uh, indicia of corruption, but it's also a very powerful tool to drive behavior. So a really interesting sort of policy analysis by Matthew, and I would encourage everyone to, uh, to take a look at it and see what they may find in as well. So uh, next up, we're going to take a look at how we can sharpen our cybersecurity during the pandemic. Uh, this comes to us from ProTivity's Jim Deloach, and he says that the cyber threat landscape continues to evolve. Cybersecurity remains an important boardroom and C-suite topic as the COVID-19 pandemic forces remote work and adoption of new technologies. The pandemic has shifted just about everything. Cybersecurity is no exception. First, consider the transition to the remote workforce. Second, cyber attackers are using COVID-19 and the crisis as an opportunity to trick unsuspecting employees into clicking on attachments or links to fraudulent websites. Finally, outside the safety and security perimeter of this workplace environment, specific controls may be less effective or even unavailable as employees deploy new collaboration or cloud tools. So here are the seven things to be on the lookout for. Changes in key vendor operating environments can create additional cyber risk. The company's vendors are also being challenged by the pandemic to protect their employees and their businesses. Don't let over-investing in protection and detection lead to under-investing and response and recovery. Understand the paradox in breach detections between cyber leaders and beginners and the digital paradox business results and digital leaders reporting more cyber attacks than beginners. Number four, mounting the enemy within. A consistent and persistent threat remains user error. Know how much to quantify cyber risk to put a value on the crown jewels. 
Organizations must understand the data and information they need to prioritize when allocating protection assets. Know your own crown jewels. It has also been well documented that not all data is created equal. Increase the confidence of executive management and the board through effective reporting. If cyber risk is measured quantitatively and risk thresholds are established, metrics can be provided to keep the board informed. Finally, take stock of the changing cyber landscape. It's important to stay in touch with the cyber landscape as it evolves. Ransomware has become a critical issue. Today, it's not just about credit card data theft, but rather the focus should be on any information that may be of value to hackers and third parties. One of the biggest cyber risks is for an organization involves mobile devices. Third-party threats loom large and warrant more information, and the threat of state-sponsored cyber attacks looms large. Regarding strong cybersecurity measures, some organizations are later to the game than others, but the game has been changing for some time, and with the virtual environment and deployment of new technology spawned by COVID-19 pandemic, it's changing once again. We often talk about the speak-up culture, and appropriately so. But Bob Conlon wrote about the flip side to the speak-up culture, which he called the listen-up culture. And not only is it appropriate as uh, worldwide protests against racism and police brutality continue, certainly around the death of uh, George Floyd, uh, who we honor with our title. He was buried in Houston this week, his hometown. But Bob really talked about why uh, speak-up culture puts the onus for incident issue reporting on employees and listen-up culture brings in the responsibility of senior management and staff. And he, and he gives three steps um, for uh, a putting or, or ch- making that change so that the tone at the top must create an comfortable environment that encourages staff to report. It expects staff to be a part of the solution, not seen as part of the problem, step one. Step two is employees are expected to report incidents and cur- concerns appropriately. And then here, it's the key one is step three. Management guided by a well-run compliance program takes action to follow up with employees and reporters and resolve the issues. Obviously, that includes a robust investigation. That uh, includes uh, discipline, if appropriate. You've got to prove you're worth worth listening to, and you really need to put a keen focus right now on discrimination and other HR-related issues, harassment, retaliation, inappropriate behavior, compensation disparities. So I really applaud Bob for uh, stepping out and, and reminding us that it's not simply raising your hand. It's not even simply speaking up. It's a culture of speak up, and it's a culture of listen up. Good stuff, Tom. Uh, Next up, we have something from one of our weekly uh, stalwarts here, the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog. This comes to us from Catherine Ryman, who's an adjunct professor of law and a senior fellow at NYU. It's entitled Managing Risk and Compliance Staffing Decisions. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, surveyed evidence suggested that compliance staff downsizing and compliance budget capping were taking place across the corporate world. Appropriate compliance risk management by definition requires periodic redeployment or readjustment of resources to address the most critical risks. The longstanding Caremark doctrine, which we've spoken about in the past, and post-Caremark 
pronouncement of enforcement authorities and commissions make clear that boards of directors have accountability for assuring establishment of an effective and efficiently resourced compliance function. Here are 10 questions to ask when having to look at how you're going to deal with this moving forward. Number one, how is it made clear that compliance remains a priority for the firm? Throughout any crisis, downsizing, or period of uncertainty, executive management should continue to communicate the importance of compliance risk management. Number two, what is the firm's documented past record for timely completion of core compliance? It is prudent to revisit how records may be perceived by an independent observer assessing staffing adequacy. Number three, can the firm document Paul? compliance workflow changes made necessary by the staff changes. And this rings to your document, document, document proviso. Number four, do proposed resource changes match updated compliance risk assessments? Where just diminished risks or needs are driven by an announced change in business strategy or downsizing of a business area, has a current risk assessment been performed? Five, look ahead to post-COVID-19 and will the compliance capacity be sufficient to handle ramifications of change customer, vendor, and transaction behavior? Six, has the effectiveness of new technology solutions meant to reduce staffing needs been validated? Seven, have you looked beyond formal job descriptions to assess the influence impact of proposed changes? Taken together, will proposed changes result in, in excessive juniorization uh, is there proposed changes taken together? Will, will there still be enough risk managers and advisors of sufficient experience and stature with the right depth of decision making? Eight, have you examined the compliance program coverage model for effectiveness in a holistic way? Nine, do proposed resource changes continue to support the program? If compliance programs have matured past building stage and now require only maintenance work, has the task of keeping them current been assigned formally to personnel? And number 10, have you considered and, if necessary, prepared for any loss of institutional memory? Is the enterprise sufficiently prepared for other collateral impacts of a downsizing, such as loss of historical memory? And is the organization's compliance processes sufficiently documented to provide blueprints needed to make future changes? It's unquestionably an added burden to perform the assessments described above, However, a documented, deliberate, risk-based approach to right-sizing compliance staff and supporting resources, particularly in times of stress, demonstrates the kind of oversight, care, and transparency necessary to prevent backsliding and the strength of an entity's risk management program and culture. Jay, we had a, or will have a departure from the Department of Justice, and that is Brian Benchkowski. He of the Benchkowski Memo has announced he's leaving on, uh, I believe, July 3, will be his last day at the Department of Justice. Allegedly, this um, departure has been on the works for some time. It's uh, reported by Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, and uh Although after the Goldman Sachs report today, you have to ask if if it's over a difference on the potential penalty for Goldman Sachs and is the DOJ going to cave into uh, their pressure or not. So, um, But uh, everyone in compliance, I think, owes Brian Benchkowski a, a tip of the compliance hat, Jay. He has been a friend of compliance programs. The um, 
Janikowski memo, the evaluations of corporate compliance programs, original document from April 2019, the 2020 update, all had his fingerprints on it. Uh, the His push towards giving credit to companies for their extensive cooperation, extraordinary cooperation and extensive remediation efforts, I think, has uh, really helped compliance practitioners. I had a chance to meet Brian Spinkowski when he announced the uh, – 2019 evaluation of corporate compliance program uh, original document, or at least uh, the superseding of the Wei Jin uh, and Andrew Weissman 2017 document, when uh, that was at the ECI conference in April of 2019. Uh, I had a chance to share a drink with him after the event. A really gracious guy. Uh, he knew compliance in and out, and we talked extensively about the nuts and bolts of that document. So I know you have uh, had a chance to uh, write, read, and think quite a bit about some of the um, information and pronouncements that came out under his watch uh, in the criminal division. He headed the criminal division. Did you have any thoughts on maybe what he meant or has meant to the compliance profession and even uh, to your specific world of monitors? Yeah, great question, Tom. I think um, if you recall, we had Put together the Everything Compliance Group, and uh, at the beginning of the Trump administration coming in, uh, a lot of people were very scared about what was going to happen uh, in terms of ethics and compliance. And I think our fears were very much allayed by the different uh, papers that you enumerated that Ben Sikowski was involved with. Um, we were somewhat uh, dis. I, I don't know if it was disappointed is the word, but when he took the memo to talk about when you need a monitor and he specifically drew out when those circumstances uh, are necessary, I think uh, we believe in what he's really articulated to the uh, ethics and compliance community that you have to weigh the benefits and the cost of whether or not you bring a monitor on. And a monitor should only come on in the most egregious manner matters. That being said, two of the higher uh, cases that we saw come up in the last uh, couple of years had monitors placed on them. And I think if it's a big transformative case where there is real, um, you know, culpability, that monitors will still go in. In the interim, there is the documents uh the paper that Ben Zikowski leaves behind, which I think uh, as we started off our broadcast on this, that the more and more people read what the DOJ is looking for, hopefully they will have the, uh, the, the, the tools in place to catch bad deeds, but at the same time, it will allow them to properly design a program which will work and move forward with them, uh, you know, in the future. So I, I think, uh, it was a, a great three three year run, and uh, we'll have to see who uh, how this new gentleman who comes in uh, will take up uh, Ben Sikowski's shoes. Switching over to uh, the compliance life, I enjoyed part one of you and Ryan Rabelais. Uh, I haven't had a chance to listen to the second one. What do we have to look forward to in this podcast? Well, there in this one, Ryan really takes on a, a myth that I think many of us have grown up with in compliance. That compliance is the <clears throat> the land of no, populated by Doctor No. And, uh, and uh, rather than than put that off on the business, he he turns it around and puts it on the compliance function. And he said that in many ways it's because they don't know how we work. 
uh, that we're a black box. Something goes in, it may stay there for a while, and then it comes out. And he specifically talked about third-party due diligence. You and I can probably talk about due diligence with our arms tied behind our backs and blindfolded. Probably even if we had our ears plugged with wax, we could explain or talk about how you do due diligence on third parties. But he said that's, you know, an inside baseball conversation. And in many ways, the business people don't know the process. And so he really advocates education of the compliance process as the key way to uh, not only uh, get away from the the myth of Dr. No from the land of no, but also to bring greater transparency to the compliance function, uh, garner more support within the business and more fully operationalized compliance. So a very interesting approach and in, in, uh, from Ryan. Um, we had uh, get on uh, compliance and coronavirus this week. I had three guests from K2 Intelligence Finn. Gabe Hidalgo talked about lessons learned for the financial institutions during the time of COVID-19. Sapita Rowland talked about uh PPP program and changing risks for financial institutions. And it concluded with Ray Dukey, who talked to us about evolving fraud risks uh, during COVID-19. So some really great information from our friends at uh, K2 Intelligence. And I continued on 31 days to a more effective compliance uh, this month, where I'm looking at internal reporting and investigations. On Monday, I looked at the always difficult issue of internal reporting and whistleblowers during layoffs. Tuesday, I flipped over to triaging of allegations. Wednesday, I looked at the investigation protocol. Thursday, preparing for an investigation. And then Friday, the selection of investigative counsel. Uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program has its own iTunes channel. You can binge out and listen to them. But it's some great stuff really on the nuts and bolts of compliance, Jay. So as Tom mentioned earlier in the podcast, he and our good friend Jonathan Marks will be putting on a webinar on the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. This will happen next Thursday, June 18th at noon central time. If you refer to the show notes, registration information is available. And I'd like to put a plug in for my affiliated monitors colleagues, Dion Lomax and Jesse Kaplan who are putting on a webinar entitled The DOJ's New Guidance for Antitrust Programs and Special Considerations During the COVID Pandemic. The webinar will discuss the DOJ's Antitrust Division's recently announced initiative to encourage corporations to develop and implement effective antitrust compliance programs. The panel will discuss the new guidance and special considerations during the COVID pandemic and provide practical tips for developing a comprehensive program, including tips on how to handle a federal and or state antitrust regulations. The event will be held next Tuesday, June 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and 9 a.m. Pacific. And in the show notes, uh, we have uh, registration information and a link in there. So uh, needless to say, there's a lot of great information uh, that Tom is putting out on the Compliance Podcast Network and some webinars for next week. So we hope you will uh, be able to take advantage of some of the knowledge. Tom, uh, anything you want to say going into wrapping out the show? 
Jay, I would just add that the antitrust compliance programs document has actually influenced the anti-corruption compliance program update from the criminal division. And I saw several instances of language from the antitrust division document of 2019 in the 2020 update. So um, every anti corruption or ABC, anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance specialist needs to be aware of the antitrust compliance program, not simply from the substantive antitrust perspective, but also it's got some great information and looks at things in a more analytical, data-focused way that you can use in your ABC compliance program. So I would uh, suggest you uh, check out Dion and Jesse, see what Uh, innovations you might come up with for your ABC program based upon what they advise on an antitrust compliance program. Great. Thanks, Tom. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 209 for the week ending June 12, 2020, the George Floyd is buried edition. Um, we, we can't say anything about hearts and thoughts because we're far beyond that. This has been a very visceral couple weeks for the country. May the Floyd family find healing and peace, and may we all find the wisdom and the desire to move forward in a manner where we show respect to all Americans. Thank you so much for joining us, and have a good weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week, where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eye. You can leave us a voicemail now on the SpeakPike app on the Compliance Podcast Network website. So if you'd like us to explore something, leave us a a message. Also, if you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Once again, thanks for listening so much. Uh, Check out both webinars that uh, I and Jonathan Marks and then Jay's colleagues are putting on next week. We've got links in the show notes. I know you will learn a lot and enjoy uh, both webinars. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.